the incomparable. Number 456, April 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're going to revisit uh, another Pixar movie. We're going to revisit last year's Incredibles 2, the sequel to my favorite Pixar movie, The Incredibles, which we've already talked about on a previous episode. Uh, Yes, I have a wonderful panel of people who have joined me to discuss Incredibles number two. Aline Sims is here. Hello. Hello. It's Mozart, Robert. Can you blame him? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try a voice. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Uh, Guy English is here. Hey, Guy. Welcome. Hey. I'm everybody's more favorite version of John Syracuse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just be turn up your hypercritical dial a little bit this time, and it'll be fine. Yeah. Nathan Alderman is here. Hello. Huh? What? Oh, sorry. I was reading the doozers of Dusseldorf, and I dozed off. And Steve Lutz, Num Num Cookie. Oh, my God. Yes! I enjoy this movie a lot. Uh, it, it, this is a fun movie. Uh, it's great to revisit the characters that I love from that movie that I said was my favorite Pixar movie, The Incredibles. I guess I've given something away in that this is not my favorite Pixar movie. Hmm. The Incredibles still is, so I think this is not as good as The Incredibles, but I think it's a good movie, and I have enjoyed revisiting it a couple of times since uh, seeing it in the theater. Uh, before we get into the plot of the movie, I thought I would go around and ask everybody how their... Uh, you know what i just want to take everybody's temperature about the incredibles like where do you think the incredibles the original movie rates in the pixar uh pantheon and uh sort of like what were you expecting going into seeing incredibles 2 aline so the incredibles is actually one of my least favorite pixar movies interesting so Mm. i am jason's nemesis Mm. good 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 imminency. Um, I yeah. So I didn't. I actually didn't watch The Incredibles two. I wasn't interested really. I was like, yeah, I'll get to it someday. And then when you were like, I need people to watch The Incredibles two and talk on a podcast, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll do it. But I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> and maybe I'll back out because I don't like talking about things I don't like. And um, I actually. So I've only. I'm coming like 45 minutes off of watching it, but I really liked it. I kind of had a goofy smile on my face the entire time I was watching it um so yeah I'm, I was excited I was like oh I should have watched this sooner I regret not watching it sooner but yeah don't love the Incredibles the first one interesting very very interesting guy what about you wow Lean really turned it around at the end there because I, <laughs> I was about to rage quit the podcast um <laughs> I, I love The Incredibles. I think it's uh, it's wonderful. I think it speaks to me about sort of the, the, my favorite things about superheroes. I, I love big, goofy, 60s superheroes. It's got the James Bond stuff going on. I think it's a really touching, really well-made movie. I don't know if I can say that I've got a favorite Pixar movie, but if I did, it would probably be that one. You know, you could edge me out if I'd seen something more recently and I'd felt more personally affected by it in the moment. But overall, overall, Incredibles is way up there for me. I think it's just a terrific, wonderful film in general. All right. Nathan? Um, I've been waiting 14 years to see this movie. Uh, the incre- original Incredibles is one of my favorite films, uh, probably my favorite Pixar film. Um, I'm a huge Brad Bird fan, have been since uh, The Iron Giant blew my mind way back in 1999. So, uh, yeah, I was really, really excited to see this film. And Steve? Um, I'm on record as saying that I very much like The Incredibles. I'm not sure I'd put it at my top. I think that still is up at this point, but uh, Mm. it might be number two for me. Very, very good. Big fan. Um, And I had not seen Incredibles 2 until last night when I watched it for the very first time. 
And I got to tell you, it was incredibly disappointing. Uh-huh. I'm just kidding. It wasn't really that disappointing. It was disappointing to me. There's a lot that I liked about it, and uh, I don't think it comes anywhere near the heights of the first movie. So I may be with you there. I, I, I like it. I think it's a fun movie, but there are, I have issues with it that I don't have with the first movie. But we'll get into that now. We, we can talk about uh, Incredibles 2. So it takes place... Um, Right after the last scene of the first movie, which if you if you don't recall, they save the day and then there's a little bit of a time break and then the family is out and the underminer played by John Ratzenberger, everybody's favorite uh, Pixar mascot, John Ratzenberger. Uh, <laughs> and so this movie picks up there. So a little time has passed since the major events of Incredibles, but it is right in line with the last scene in that movie. They fight the Underminer. There is a very exciting action scene to start the, uh, to start the film. Um, and although they defeat the Underminer, there is a great deal of collateral damage, which leads to sort of the plot of the movie, which is that they've done more damage than just letting the Underminer take stuff and leave. And that uh, they shut down the superhero program and uh, special agent Rick Dicker basically says you can have two weeks in a crappy motel. But at that point, um, you're you're going to have to just do something else. Now, what was the superhero program at this point? Because they were still obviously illegal. I mean, was it simply I think, the... I think it's their, their witness protection program is basically what it is. It's they, they put them up with uh, different identities. It seemed like in the first movie, they were all basically dead besides... <laughs> Besides the uh, Frozone and the Incredible Family, anyway. So I'm not sure how much was right, left. Syndrome of the killed everybody else. Yeah. There's a moment where there's a, an anecdote that's told about Gazer Beam and and Phyronic, and I thought to myself, Gazer Beam just his body was just found. <laughs> the the wounds are fresh, but you know, oh well. There's an well, anecdote. Gazer Beam about was Gazer already Beam. a skeleton by the time uh, Bob found him. Well, he was missing, but I, I think he wasn't known to be dead until he was. Yeah, they found uh, him from from Bob's perspective. It was pretty new loss. Yeah, yeah, and the, from the public, I don't know if that was ever made public that that all the supers got got killed. It's not really there. Probably not something you want to spread wide. Yeah, uh, maybe not that there there are all these superheroes died. You probably want to keep it in your back pocket that you know maybe you can bring them out of retirement if you need to, mm. so nobody gets too in, in the event of a of an emergency. Exactly. I enjoyed this uh, this action scene. They, there's like uh, it is f- exactly what I'd expect for somebody like the Underminer, who is like a mole man who wants to steal things. Is he's got a big vacuum? <laughs> he's gonna break into a <laughs> vault and suck up the money. It makes me laugh. <laughs> I, I I enjoy it. And then of course the vacuum mechanics end up playing into the uh, the, the the action scene, and it's a it's a fun scene that uh, we all left the original Incredibles sort of like in that moment of, oh, they got to go back to work. And I think it's funny that they pick it, pick it uh, up where they left off and we get to see that scene. But I thought it was, I thought it was uh, a very entertaining start to this movie. This scene began my first problem with the movie, which is that there are a lot of individually great scenes and a lot of great setups and no payoff. The, the underminer, you know, I, I I was really hoping they would start with the Underminer scene because I wanted to see them, since the end of the first movie, fight the Underminer. 
but he gets away. He he sets the plot in motion, but he never comes back. He is always a dangling thread to the point where they even put his little drill machine driving along at the bottom of the screen and at the very end of the end credits, as if they were acknowledging, oh, wait, we forgot about that guy. <laughs> and it's, it's the first um, of many things in this movie that work great as individual scenes, but promise something that the film then never delivers. Now, one of the greatest things I think about the first movie is that there's no, there's nothing wasted. Right. Everything that they that everything that they show in even in the early stages of the movie pays off at some point. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, Nathan. In, in there's this gigantic fight with the underminer and then he's just gone and they don't catch him. They never see him again, you know, except for that little bit at the very, very end. And that is it's a bit of a letdown. And you're right. It happens time and time again in this movie. And that's part of my disappointment with it. The other thing is that um, as great of an action scene as this is, this, I think, suffers from the same thing as a lot of the action scenes in the Marvel movies, and that's that there aren't really stakes that I care about a whole lot here. There's a character I like that's fighting, and he's in jeopardy, but unlike most of the things in the first movie, and the battles in the first movie, you know, there isn't the the emotional heft of the whole family dynamic going on. No, really, the the stakes here are that they want to do a good job, and they kind of don't which gets them in trouble. Right. That's sort of the, but, but it's like, yeah, they're, somebody's vacuuming up money from yeah. a bank. It's not, it, there's not a lot of emotional impact. It's more just like a, a flashy, like at the beginning of a James Bond movie, it's your flashy action scene to get you into the movie. I should mention some backstory here because Pixar shifted the release dates of The Incredibles 2 and Toy Story 4. And at a point that was sooner than they would have liked, their release date moved up and they lost a year of... Uh, production time and brad bird has said that they ended up in a scramble plot wise they threw out a bunch of plot elements i read that and thought to myself yes this is not the kind of clockwork story that the original incredibles is Mm -hmm. there's a lot in here that i really like but it doesn't all hold together and there are moments where the more you think about it you're like i don't know why that happened and like they changed villains at some point late in the game and if you think about the villains that are in the movie i have i start to have lots of questions about like why why such a complex plan and like uh, it's it's kind of fascinating that that uh a movie that contains so many things that i really like I, i think it's a good movie but there are parts of the plot that i feel are kind of broken like they just had to do something and knowing that they they kind of got their deadline moved up actually makes me understand that a little bit more than I I might otherwise because it does not hold together in the clockwork way that I think the first movie did. But if there's truth to that change in schedule, what a phenomenally stupid thing to do for a movie that you've already held off on 14 years for making right? a Right, you waited 14 years but now you need to do it really <laughs> quick and you need to rush it and you need to, you know, rush your plot instead of get, taking the time that you should have had. Yeah, right? I sort of I sort of like the opening battle. I like the fact that it was a like a James Bond sort of yeah, beginning adventure. Adventure, I like agree. a cold start adventure. I like that it introduced the powers of the uh, the family again. It's been 14 years. Mm-hmm. People don't know what they can do. I like that it sort of set up a dynamic. Um, I thought it worked well as an introduction into the into the world. And I always felt that Underminer was just a like a write off joke. He, he to me at the end of the last movie, he felt more like an homage to um, Mole Man, the Mole from Man Fantastic from Fantastic Four. Four. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's Doctor Doom and the Mole Man. He's got elements of the two costumes mashed together. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do like that when he vacuums up uh, Mister Incredible. He tells him like, "Oh, great! Now he's on the what does he say? Oh, now he's on the agenda." 
Like the underminer is basically, he's not just a mole man, but he, he is also the guy that's just undercuts you at meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't do enough with it, but I just love the fact that he's like, oh, now he's on the agenda. It's such a weird, <laughs> weird little one-liner drop that, yeah, maybe you guys are right. Maybe they could have fleshed it out more, but I, I don't know. I, I was just happy to see my, my friendly super family back on the screen again. I don't. I don't mind that scene. I think that's why that scene exists. I think. I think the greater point is that then the mole man or the underminer is just kind of lost and he never yeah. comes back. Yeah, and I, I think that's more of what I feel throughout this movie is that it's not all as tightly connected, and there are lots of mm-hmm. loose ends, and there are lots of sort of lo- leaps that you have to take. And I appreciate this move. The scenes in this movie in isolation, I think, maybe than I do more as a whole. Yeah, I mean, Brad Bird is. I think he's one of the greatest living animators. I think it's basically like Hayao Miyazaki and then Brad Bird. And it really hurts me to to say that I think the f- problems with this movie all fall on his script or lack thereof. Because every, almost everything else about this movie is, inc- uh, no pun intended, incredible. <laughs> the performances are fantastic. The action scenes are dynamic. There are so many good scenes and jokes and moments. And... Um, and the the character animation in this film is unbelievable. If you you can watch it with the sound off and just see all the care they put into making these characters actually act in subtle, tiny ways, and it, it's so disappointing that it couldn't be in service of a better, more cohesive story. The production design too is spectacular, which is not oh, surprising. Yeah. It's it looks so good. Great. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We can probably all hold our hands up and admit cybercrime is scary, but it's not our problem. We don't need to worry about it, right? We're fine. We're fine. We're safe. Well, hmm, yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. You probably shouldn't use public Wi-Fi unencrypted because you are using an unencrypted data connection, and that is very bad. Um, I can think of a way to encrypt your data connection so that nobody can spy on you, see what you're doing, not even your ISP, and it is using a VPN like ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing and encrypts your data. It hides your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your device. You can turn on ExpressVPN protection with just one click. And that's it. You're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. It was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Couldn't be easier to use. I installed it on my iPad and in a couple of taps. I was someone else, somewhere else, and all my data was not being spied on by my ISP or by that guy in the corner of my local Starbucks. For less than $7 a month, you can get that same ExpressVPN protection. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com snell to learn more, protect your online activity today, and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com snell. That's E-X-P. R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Snell for three months free with a one-year package. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting The Incomparable. Um, okay, so the uh, after The Underminer, uh, the, you know, they are told that the uh, this is the last straw of superheroes destroying things, and it's the end, and they're in a motel, and it looks bad, but uh, tech or communications, I guess, billionaires to the rescue, the, um, the Deavers... Winston Deaver, who runs a telecommunications company, and his sister Evelyn appear, and they want a meeting with Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and Frozone. And what they want to do is a PR campaign, which I think is a very clever um, 
little twist in the movie. They want to do a PR campaign that is calibrated to have positive PR for superheroes as part of a larger effort to get superheroes to be legalized. And embedded in this is the idea that Mr. Incredible is is he 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 is less concerned about collateral damage and he they've done some charts that show that that uh that Elastigirl does better at saving the day without destroying as many things and so they want to use Elastigirl as their pilot uh superhero in the field to do this PR rehab which sets up the big um, theme of the movie and the big plot of the movie, which is unlike the last movie, which was about Bob going off and doing superhero-y things while Helen was home with the kids. In this movie, Helen gets to go be the superhero in public, and Bob stays at home with the kids. And that is what Incredibles 2 is about at its core. And I, th- I think the problem with that is that Bob already had that arc in the previous movie, not just of getting his superhero mojo back, but in the process becoming a more engaged and involved parent. Um, I like that they're basically picking up with Holly Hunter's character's uh, uncertainty, Elastigirl's uncertainty in the first movie. Am I still good at this? Am I still cut out for this? How does this still fit in my life? And I love that she's the protagonist. I love her relationship with with the the, um, Evelyn Dever, but... I feel like a lot of the the character arcs for the the main characters in this movie, if they even exist, are kind of treading water, except for hers and Jack-Jack's. They were the two characters most neglected in the first film, so it makes sense they get more of a focus here, but the other characters' arcs just don't really land for me. Especially, I mean, Violet's arc is barely there, and I think Dash's arc is that he likes a car. (laughs) (laughs) And remotes. A remote control car. Right. The biggest problem with that whole plot line for me is not so much retreading that that previous plot line from the first movie, although it is definitely. Um, it's it's more that I think one of my favorite things from the original is that there are so many of these scenes that are just regular domestic life, but with the spin that everybody has superpowers, right? And Bob's the stuff that Bob has to deal with is all pretty standard sitcom fare kind of stuff. Dash's big problem is his math test. Violet's mm-hmm. big problem is boys. Uh, sure, Jack-Jack is getting into trouble with, with superpowers and such, but I mean, um, you know, it's not really so far removed from babies do crazy things and keep parents up, you know. And in, in at least as far as Dash and Violet goes, in no way are their powers even involved in that plot line. They just are having regular kid problems, and the fact that they happen to be superheroes doesn't even come up. Right in the in the original movie, you know, Violet's invisibility is very much like, you know, that's her high school thing is that she feels like she's not seen and not noticed. And Dash has the thing where he's exceptional as a runner, but he needs to he needs to hide who he is, right? Because even though he's exceptional at something, he he can't do it. And here, they are are less of the focus. I think the Jack-Jack stuff is spectacular and and very good, but you're right, Violet and Dash don't get as much treatment. I love the stuff with Bob. I think the point of the movie being, in part, that being a parent is being a superhero and that parenting is a job that is hard and we notice when the mom takes care of the kids we just kind of assume that it's all fine but when the dad does it everybody goes oh wow it actually is hard and it's like i i mean he's bad bird is trying to say some things about that's it, a but. plot line i've seen a million times in a million it's sitcoms true. 
And if you're going to do it here, you got to put a spin on it. And there was no spin on it other than the Jack-Jack stuff again, which I will agree is great. I have my own complaints about Jack-Jack's uh, overpowered superpowers, but that doesn't really play in here. So there... There's a line about how, uh, I think Edna says, um, babies often have multiple superpowers. Like it's the idea is that it's a, it's a phase that super babies go through, which is sort of how I, I take it to be because he has every superpower. Although it apparently never did with Dash or Violet and everybody seems to be surprised. Apparently not. (laughs) But, uh, what I will say is those scenes where he's, where they can't, he's like disappearing and needs cookies and is raging around the house and especially, the scene with a raccoon, which is, that is uh, A-list Looney Tunes level three mm-hmm. or four minutes in the middle of this movie. Sure. It is like like the uh, Disney princesses scene in Ralph Breaks the Internet. It is a, mo- it is a, a couple of minutes that justify the movie all by themselves, in my opinion. Yeah, that- I think that couple of minutes may be my favorite Pixar movie. <laughs> except, except it is great. It's amazing. It's, it's really funny good, yeah. and, and baby hysterical. baby on fire versus and- a raccoon? That's awesome. Yes, I know. <laughs> having Jack-Jack have a nemesis and mm-hmm. having the nemesis be a raccoon is brilliant. But that scene was a leftover from the original film and they put it in here, and again, it never pays off. I want to see the raccoon come back. I want to see a through line, a, a story arc <laughs> for Jack Jack, where the he and the the raccoon like start out as nemeses, and maybe they end as friends. Now, that thing has like fleas and rabies. The raccoon disappears and never comes back, except in the Edna mode short, they they have a few raccoons running into Edna's compound when her power goes out. I, I it's just it was so frustrating. I'm like, so when's the raccoon going to come back? The raccoon is on the poster. When, where's the raccoon? Well, I think the raccoon's in the background in a couple of shots, too. I, I mean, I, I get that it's not like, oh, my God, the raccoon's on the ship saving the day suddenly of, or something. But return of the raccoon. Return yeah, of the I raccoon, yeah. I don't know if I'm concerned about the raccoon not coming back. The raccoon is in the best scene in the movie, and, and it's like, what does a baby have for a for an arch enemy? And it's the, the burglar that is the raccoon and it it makes me laugh and and all of the other stuff with uh with jack jack make me laugh i like bob being frazzled i do think it goes on a little too. bit too long but i like you know i i enjoy the i know it has been done a million times steve but i still enjoy like that is parenthood when when uh you need to do long division with your kid and they tell you no 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 we don't do long division anymore we do this other weird division and you're like wait a second and i you know that that part is a little bit uh, samey, but I do like later how it pays off where Bob hasn't slept for a couple of days and he keeps mumbling about how they changed math. That made me laugh. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed yeah. that as part of his litany. Cause he's like, he's, he's a, he's a, he's lost it at that point. Right. And he's just got a mumbled list of grievances against the universe. And one of them is that, uh, that they changed math. I yeah. like that. Like, I, I do agree that the, the, Bob storyline has been done before, but I guess the twist of it is seeing Jack-Jack as the agent of chaos that a baby is, but superpowered, just kind of takes it up a notch, which it, at least for the physical comedy of it plays mm-hmm. well for yeah. me. I, I enjoy the physical comedy of it. I enjoy him multiplying and turning into a monster or on fire, like all of the weird, crazy stuff that happens. I just really enjoy it. And it, it's Got little to do with whatever his, the rules of the superpowers are in this world, and it has more to do with just poor Bob coming apart of the scenes because he is completely inadequate at dealing with this part of his family life. And also because he's such an arrogant jerk. Like, 
consistent. It's yeah. consistent right, about his character. And so I, I appreciate that he's like, what? You want a last girl to be the one to do the proof of concept stuff, but I'm better than she is. And then he's faced with this thing that's like, I don't know, a 20th of his size that is just a pure um, agent of chaos mm-hmm. that he has to deal with and is... I don't know if there's an Incredibles three, hopefully humbled by, because that's one of my grievances with Bob's characters, just how arrogant he is. Um, because there's, there's, there's so many arrogant people in the world. It's kind of like Steve, you're like, I've seen this in a sitcom and I'm like, I've seen the arrogant dude in a thing before. <laughs> real and life. So, <laughs> real life. Right. So, so th- that's why I enjoy this aspect of the movie is just because it's a really good contrast for how high and mighty, he is in those opening scenes and then all of a sudden he's like unshaven and delirious because the stuff that his wife does so well and so gracefully he just can't handle and she's doing really well at her job too which i think is is also part of it is i think there are a lot of couples that um that one of them is uh you know that everybody is fine with the equitable relationship but there's still the one person who it brings you know the money home and and then when prompted to switch roles it's not as easy to be equitable as you thought it was and helen does a great job that is a uh, another enjoyable scene where she's on her electric motorcycle it's got a lot of torque and she uh is tr- doing the runaway train thing right and that's a, that's another fun scene and she's really good at it and she uses all of her uh, elastic girl powers that we see in those last few scenes in the incredibles in order to save the day and that's the contrast with bob being at home and and it uh yeah he, it bothers him right because he wants to be out there and 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 uh, doing all of those things at the same time he is brute strength right and she has more finesse than he does and that was the whole point of them picking her is that he would probably have broken the train right into pieces and she doesn't do that but that but they set all that up and that once again barely pays off Hmm. you know he sees her on he sees her news conferences and and the great things that she's been doing and he clearly looks pissed off by it but where's the scene where he you know comes to comes to terms with that it never really happens they just end up, he, he goes to, to rescue her, and then they have the, you know, pretty much the same sequence of events that happened, but in reverse uh, in the first yep. film. Yep. And at no point, you know, is there ever a reckoning about him getting over his jealousy it's just you know it's just brushed under the rug no the the linkages between the scenes in this movie i think that's one of the the issues i have with it is that there there's a point where in on the at the end of the movie where all of the action kicks in and i think this is great and it is it's it's some great action and some great dialogue and some great visuals mm-hmm. but to get there you know it's you know, it's kind of, there's some sleight of hand. There's kind of a hole in the middle of the plot where they just really need to move you to the next action uh, set piece. And the action set pieces again are good, but are they connected? And um, I, I think so. So we, we meet the Devers, they're rich. Um, they set this whole thing up. Uh, they also set them up in a house, which is actually another weird thing about this movie. And it made, it made me wonder if that they built this awesome house and then, Maybe the maybe the story changed. 
um, because the way they're explained why they live in this awesome house with the pools and stuff is basically like, oh, he's a billionaire and he isn't using it. And it was built for this guy who used to have it and he was paranoid. And so he had a bunch of different secret entrances where you could come and go. But now it's yours. And I thought to myself, well, this is the kind of place that a superhero would live in. But the way it's explained, like why they're in it and why it exists seems so strange. Oh, like, like, why couldn't that have just they been a superhero's lair that he bought because he was nostalgic for it? You know, you could have done some interesting things with that. I figured that was like what was actually the case. And that, that was just sort of their way of dancing around it. Yeah, except it, it, it doesn't pay off, right? No. And so it's sort of like, well, we designed this beautiful house and we're going to use it, but I'm not sure the story really necessarily... And it, and it is beautiful. Also, I mean, there's a plot reason, right? Is that we need a, a beautiful space and we need a space where things can happen, where we can have yeah. a, a, a few action scenes happen in the house. And so we can't be in a motel and they, you know, their, their house was destroyed. Um, but it does... Yeah, I, I wonder if there was originally a different reason for that house to be. Yeah. Um, it is spectacular, but... Uh, but I, I, this time watching it through, I noticed that there's this like blob of dialogue where they explain why the house is the way it is. And it's like, oh, yeah, and there was this weird guy and he owned it and he did all this and he had the different exits. And I'm like, did you buy it from Batman? Because that would be cool. That <laughs> and would they be cool. all the time but setting up these, these cool panels that disappear with pools and waterfalls and whatnot. And they never do anything with it other Not than the used. one little gag where the couch falls in. They're setting up Jack's love of remotes so we get that payoff okay. later on. There's any number of ways you could have done that without designing an entire house set, but okay. <laughs> but it's a cool house. It yeah, is a cool it, house. It's a cool house. During that major battle, you'd think maybe that the house would right? have helped them in some way. Like, exactly. you know. set piece with the remote control house and the when they're when they're attacked. Yeah. And instead, they just uh, they run away in the car, and that's the end. <laughs> it's like okay, all right. Yeah. But it is yeah. a cool house. It is a beautiful design, and I love. Just the, the the same sort of aesthetic as they had in the first movie, where the sort of fifties, yeah, you know, I love uh, that. idealized suburban fifties, you know, sort of decoy, mm-hmm. you know, combination of design elements. I, I, it's just fantastic. It was great in the first movie, and they really do some interesting things with it here, Looks particularly so in that house. So the Devers, we should talk about them. Um, so this is Bob Odenkirk as uh, as, as Jason uh, Wins- Lee. As as Winston Dever and uh, and Catherine Keener as Evelyn, his sister, and the idea there is he's the business guy and she's the tech person. Um, he is super in love with supers. His dad loved supers and was a friend of Gazer Beam and Fironic. And uh, but when they there was a break in, it's a very you know superhero origin story kind of thing. Superhero slash villain. There's a break in and uh, and he calls the superheroes to save them instead of running to their panic room, I guess. And uh, and they don't answer, and he dies. And therefore, um, they, th- this turns out to be a motivator for both uh, Bob Odenkirk's character, Winston, uh, as getting the superheroes back, and and for Kathleen, uh, Catherine Keener's Evelyn as a motivator that supers are no good, and they should be... Um, extra band i guess because <laughs> that's so so and we before we started we had a little disagreement about this so i'm just gonna lay it out there about these characters i don't like either of these characters um they they're weird like uh, the movie i'm not sure if they're trying to say something about tech billionaires or other people like that because um the weird thing is that that winston is 
uh, all surface like he really is trying to make superheroes a lot better yeah. because he loves them and it's Evelyn who has the twist where she's where she's actually set up this whole thing um, and she's created the screen slaver which is this weird character that speaks through screens and hypnotizes people and all of that as a supervillain but it's actually just a setup um, I get really confused about what her motivation is because the superheroes are already out and they've already shut down the relocation program and yet so it, you know she's sort of i guess just trying to counter her brother but she creates this whole elaborate supervillain in order to do this and then when he's captured she uses the technology to continue going like i don't really understand i think the individual parts are kind of cool but i don't really understand why she does it and what her motivation is and how it carries all the way through and then as i said before we got started i don't really love the character or the performance either i think neither of these characters are particularly appealing and katherine keener's character especially is like i never really got her she's kind of like hippy dippy at parts and then she's got that scene where she's got the she's she's drinking her drink and saying platitudes uh and then yeah. turns and then reveals that she's a supervillain and it just it never it just it, it, that character never worked for me and I, if i had to put my finger on one thing in the movie that i think is why the movie doesn't hold together even though all of the good things about it it's the devers because I, I feel like they're not like i don't quite understand why they exist and why they're doing what they're doing and with that i opened it up to everyone else to tell me what i'm wrong about because i know that other people think differently about this nathan tell me why you like katherine keener as evelyn dever because you said you you love her oh my gosh so first of all the name evelyn dever as in evil endeavor evil Gee, really i'm sorry I-, I love a good pun and that one's great mm. uh the scene where she is introduced and she's like shrugging out of her coat and dropping things everywhere is a wonderful piece of animation yep it is i like that she's frumpy frowsy she's constantly got bags under her eyes that's just an interesting look for the character um i like her relationship with helen how they have a kind of mutual respect and understanding of each other even though they're coming at the same issue from ultimately two different sides and I feel the Devers are one of my favorite parts of the movie because I feel like they have some pretty trenchant things to say about, the, you know, mo- the modern world. Um, the screen slaver is a great metaphor for the way that things like YouTube's algorithm help to radicalize innocent people or, or people who would otherwise be innocent online. I mean, the, the scene where uh, Helen fights the screen slaver and it turns out he's just a pizza guy who was brainwashed. And the screen slaver is st- somewhere else pulling the strings, I thought had a lot of power and weight as a metaphor. Um, and I like that that uh, Winston, he is all surface, but there's something under the surface. There's kind of a, a sweetness, but also a danger to his naivete uh, in the same way that you get a lot of tech billionaires who are off in their own little glowy fantasy lands and don't seem to see the real world damage that their products do. Like... Um, the guy who runs Twitter talking about how he like fasts for 12 days in a Tibetan meditation, whatever, and ignoring the fact that, you know, his platform is rife with Nazis. I get that that's what it could be, but I don't think I see it in the movie, right? I don't think I see Winston's, you know, the, the downfall of the things that Winston is doing in the movie, yeah, and in fact, not to get too political, but his whole platform is make superheroes legal again. Now, if, if there could be a more on-the-nose statement that, you know, we're trying to set up a parallel between him and Donald Trump, I don't know what it is, but it, the movie never at any point posits that he's anything other than kind of a naive 
wanting to do good sort of person. There's no, the, the only sinister element that I get from Winston Dever at all is because it's pretty obvious about 30 seconds into meeting them that one or both of them is probably behind whatever crime yeah. is going to come up next. And I wasn't sure until a little bit later which one of them it was. But his sister, I mean, his sister is evil and is doing this diabolical plot that oh is she evil i mean she is and yet she's you know she says that she's got this i don't know i i'm sorry nathan i just i i get what you're saying about like how you could read uh winston as being that it's just i'm not sure i i see the movie carrying it through two quick things one evelyn specifically mentions that if she ever turned over her her mind controlling technology to her brother he would do even worse things with it than she would because he wouldn't understand the ramifications right he would sell it he would just sell it right so he's 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 yes yes that i i will grant you that i mean he doesn't actually happen but that's what that's what she says will happen yeah and two at the end of the movie there's a weird note it's interesting although it is ultimately unsatisfying he sort of sort of starts acting weird and sinister at the end of the movie like oh don't worry i'm sure my sister will be just fine and they even have a point of having the characters look at him like hey what does he mean by that and then they forget all (laughs) about it. it But but yeah, so I felt like there was a little. He ultimately is set up as a good guy who, when he sees that things have gone wrong, he tries to to put himself in danger to make them right. But still, I feel like there's a dangerous naivete to him that isn't entirely unaddressed. Mm. There are two issues I have with him. In the first, Steve, you mentioned already, which is that you can tell pretty early on that one or both of them is going to be the big bad, right? Yep. It's just who else is it going to be? Um, And then the second thing is they set up this great relationship between um, Elastigirl and Miss Evil, and then they destroy it. And I like I don't I don't like that. I feel like what better place to have a great example of a strong, joking female relationship than in a kid's movie as, you know, something that's great. And that's that's not to say that all media has to be like a great example for everything always, but we don't get a lot of examples of that. So I was a little bit let down that it's like, well, actually, that was probably incredibly disingenuous. And, you know, here we are. And I thought that was pretty disappointing, too. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of the comic book trope, which is yeah. unfortunate given this uh, framing of it. What what does it say too about the fact that um, to Nathan's point that we've got this guy who sort of like expects the best in people and will sell anything because he's the business guy, and I mean there is there is a Steve Jobs Steve Wozniak dynamic there a little bit right that they're kind of trying to do where there's the guy who knows how to sell, um, but you might. And and always talks about the positive, but there's the tech person behind the scenes who's more skeptical about it. That's the dynamic. But what does it say about the movie that the person who is skeptical that the technology is going to be used right is the supervillain, right? Like, hmm, I, I, I it, it seems to undercut the the whole thing. And and yeah. I think that character is a little undercut yeah. by her. Sort of uh, immediately when we see her, she's sort of like, oh yeah, well, uh, this technology, you know, he he's just a he's just an empty suit and. I I do all the I do all the the thinking and I and I, I already it's sort of like okay I see where this character is trying to go and then it turns out oh no it's all just an, a devious plot and I agree with Aline too I, I really think that the rapport that they set up between Helen and Evelyn is is really interesting 
mm-hmm. and, and the way that they play off of each other, it, it seems like something really interesting is coming. And then it just turns on a dime. Nope, I'm evil, and and uh, I'm going to brainwash you. you. You're gonna you're gonna die. Right. So so I think there's yeah, and this is one of the things that, that watching this movie again, I enjoy the ride, and then I start to think about it, and then I'm like, well, wait a second. A few things there. One is yes, they have this conversation that is really interesting, where it's like we have different points of view about how we see the world, and isn't that interesting? And how do we work together? And where are our points of disagreement? And then it all gets kind of, uh, kind of thrown away, which, which is, um, it's, it's really frustrating. And the other thing is I kind of feel like, and again, maybe I'm being paranoid here because I read the story about how they kept changing the plot and they had a different villain that was like a a rogue artificial intelligence or something like that. But I look at Winston Dever and I think, I wonder if the plot would have been better if there's a period where you think where the movie is going is that Screenslaver is invented and doing evil things as a setup in order to make Helen be heroic. And then it's going to be revealed that all of her heroic actions that she's doing are not to her knowledge, but are fake. Right. Because they're trying, because, because Winston is trying to make it seem like we need the supers. And then maybe Mm -hmm. obviously there's a reversal and either the screen slaver technology is actually being used by evil by Evelyn, or maybe somebody gets hold of this technology after it's been used for this sham and then turns it into an actually villainous act. But none of that happens. And, and that kind of frustrated yeah. me because I think I like that plot better. I think I like the right. idea that yeah. it's all a fraud and we're, we're going to cause evil in order to do good as, uh, and, and that Helen would be frustrated. Like, you mean I'm saving people from you? And it's like, well, yeah, but it's all part of the greater good. And it's like, no, you are being evil. Like, that's all interesting. And instead it's just like, no, no, supers are bad. And even though they're already illegal and that you, you guys were living in a ratty motel, I had to put my plan into motion to make sure you're always <laughs> right. illegal forever. Right. My incredibly complicated plan. <laughs> well, have Evelyn even tried this plot, get talked out of it by Helen where in one of these moments, and have um, pizza delivery guy be driven nuts and st- be an actual screen slaver. Yeah. You know, like have her plant the idea, have it go haywire because the technology runs away from her. And then they can team up to win in the end somehow. But it's very, it's convoluted and I don't understand her motivation terribly well. I like the creepy scene with the screen slaver where Helen breaks into it. the apartment and she's she's up on the roof talking it to the very, guy. very, very good. Very effective. The news anchor and the helicopter thing is good too. It, um, the news anchor who looks strangely like Matthew Modine, but it's not Matthew Modine doing the voice. I, I don't know, it's just me. Um, uh, the, the, the creepy where she she's sticking her arm under the door and you see the screen slaver there and then he's not there and then she's going through all the weird lighting and they have that fight in the like super bright light room where yes. they've got like the, it's... It, actually the thing closest to into the spider verse in this movie it's this very different animation look where they've got kind of thick strokes around their body it looks like uh the as the as the kirby crackle it's on like the wall joe if you've ever played that game it's it's very cool uh, and, I have and it that, all caps in my notes i just wrote down this screen slaver fight is beautiful because yeah it, it's amazing it did, did, so did you guys see this in animated. a cinema they had a they had a warning before the before the show started. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, the home just, video version doesn't yeah. do as many of the strobe flashes as oh, the okay. movie theater version did because there it was people were having um, there were a few sensitive people who were having seizures, people who have epileptic seizures driven by 
flashing lights and so they had to put warnings up in the theater and my understanding is they actually redid some of the animation for the home video release to tone it down so that people could watch it but but it looks so good (laughs) it really does And that's and and again, this is what I'm going to keep saying about this movie is like the individual parts are really great. The scene where the bad guys come to the house and Lucius is there, and the jokes with the uh, with the Incredible are pretty good. Incomparable friend uh, Michael B. Johnson is uh has two lines as victor cachet yep. <laughs> who's the guy who owns the incredible the rich oh, guy that him? that's him yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, who cowers behind the girl in the hot tub when it when it drives away but like that, <laughs> i've acted with that guy before but yeah exactly but but in that in the house that that's a, a fun fight the the other we get to see other superheroes which we really didn't see in the original incredibles and they we meet them Void at is the, amazing yeah, we meet them at the lounge and we meet like Void, who's really interesting and looks up to uh, to Helen and she's her hero and she's got interesting powers. And then suddenly they're, you know, they fight them and then later they get, fight them again. But then the, it re- it's reversed. That's all good. Like, I I keep coming back to the fact that I think the action sequences are good. I think a lot of the comedy is good with the mm-hmm. kids when the kids are taking care of uh, of of Jack-Jack, when Edna uh babysits jack jack i think those are a couple of fun scenes where oh we my could... gosh i love edna i, I yeah. haven't laughed as hard at anything in a long time as i did uh when they're going into edna's secret vault and jack jack presents himself yeah. to the voice recognition thingy and yeah fantastic and and the little look on his face afterwards as he pops his sucker back in his mouth is just yeah. hilariously funny. It's why I keep coming back to that quote about them having their schedule moved up and having them like working out the plot sort of late is like this movie has so many great scenes with characters that they know it, Brad Bird knows them so well. It's got great design and then it's all the connective tissue that I'm like hmm. <laughs> like I don't understand that part, but yet all the individual bits are really good. Um you know, and there is that there is I think I think the uh, the gap in the movie is that uh, when the car rescues the kids and they have to go to the boat mm-hmm. um, and then there's the boat stuff like as the as soon as you get to the boat, as soon as that's all put in place, it's just kind of action to the end of the movie. That's, it's re- really all it is, is we've got the intercutting of the kids on the boat and the uh, the heroes are being used as pawns to uh, set up this disaster where a big boat hits the city uh disaster boat hits city uh, <laughs> and and uh and the kids with jack jack trying to babysit him that part is hilarious mm. uh you know and then the the ultimate fight as they're as they're popping off the goggles of the people and turning them from from good to bad is is all really good but like at that point the plot is kind of or the um the mechanics of the movie are over at that point and it's right. just an extended fight scene and like as a marvel movie essentially it's excellent. It is an excellent end to the movie in terms of all the different, you know, you've got the mechanics of the boat. They got to turn the boat. They got to go up to the airplane. Void gets to use her little void portals to try and shoot Helen up to the airplane. And that's amazing. There's, there's uh, a void, void fighting. Um, uh, the daughter is just an incredible fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The for- the force fields versus the void stuff. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. And the guy, uh, by, by the way, one of my favorite things in the whole movie, other than the raccoon, is um, the guy who, who crushes stuff. And yes. Bob says, can you, you uncrush it? Something? And he says, you try to unpunch somebody. <laughs> what you <I> do? <laughs> it's so good. I, 
I don't like the designs, the character designs in the new supers. I realize that they're sharp and angular and kind of grotesque because they want to subtly tip you off that these people are going to be dangerous later. But it's just really not pleasant to look at them. They look crude and and unappealing to me in a way that that some of Bird's other caricatured characters like Anton Ego and Ratatouille don't. Oh, I don't I don't agree. I really like Void and I like the owl guy too. I think the owl they're pretty good, yeah. Yeah. I enjoy the reflux. (laughs) Reflux is an old man with heartburn, folks. I've been there. (laughs) I think my favorite part of the ending is the final fight with uh, with Helen and Evelyn, where Evelyn is actively trying to die, and Helen is fighting as hard as she can to save her. I love that dynamic in superhero movies. I love it in Spider-Man Homecoming. And it's just, to me, there's something so powerful about a villain who is so sad and broken inside that they're determined to die, and a hero who has to fight as hard as they can to save this person who would gladly kill them. Yeah, I agree 100% that these are great, very inventive, well-choreographed fight scenes, uh, much like the first movie, they don't suffer from from what a few of the Marvel movies do, where you don't really understand what's going on at any given time. Right. Things are just bashing into each other. They're they're perfectly timed and choreographed, so you know exactly what's happening, and you know you know where in space you are in the in the greater fight scene space. Um, and I just wish there was some more emotional heft behind it because there were scenes this good in the first movie too, but they carried concern for the kids and and the relationships between the family members and all that had come before you get some of that when when bob and helen are uh are taken over and the kids have to do it like that's good like the kids have to save their parents they're really superheroes they really need to save their parents Sure, but it's not really paying anything off well i mean it, it, it's the kids being on their own and it, i mean i feel like it's paying off from from all the way from the first movie of like the kids want to be the superheroes that they've never been allowed to be and they have to save their parents and i i, I feel like there's some emotional weight at least maybe not a payoff yeah. emotional weight to the kids having to be the babysitter and having to save their parents as soon as the goggles come off though that's over. Yeah. I mean, I agree that that's there. I just don't feel like it's really, it's really emphasized at all during this movie, especially, um, you know, it, it's, and like at the end, there's the bit where Violet decides that, uh, oh, well, I'll take the baby. You go save the world and I'm going to protect the baby. Cause that's important too. It feels like it should be like this big, uh, you know, climactic moment and it just falls flat as a brick. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I feel like once, uh, like you say, where the, where he, he wishes the car could turn into a boat and then it turns into a boat. Everything that's come before is basically wiped clean and there really isn't any kind of buildup that pay, gets paid off. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm bashing this movie more than, than I, 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 I'm making it sound like I dislike it more than I do. I agree with you. There are a lot of great things in this movie. These fight scenes are fantastic. And maybe some of the problem is that I think the first movie does these things so well, but this movie just pales so much in comparison. I, I, I have a hard time, you know, feeling feeling particularly positive about these scenes when, when I can c- compare them with what came before. So I'm interested, since Aline said that, um, that she didn't like the first one and she liked this one, what is it about this one that hit you positively that the other one didn't hit? I think part of it is that um, just kind of my general need to see women succeed um, where the Incredibles was very much focused on Bob and how great Bob is and how, you know, whatever Bob, Bob, Bob. And all of the Elastigirl stuff was wrapped up in being 
a parent and protecting the children and Bob was just off doing whatever the heck he wanted to do. Um, So I think that that's a big component of it. But there are also I just I thought that there were it's the little funny notes that we've talked about. And a lot of the um, 14 years of advancement in technology, being able to bring like the sets and the characters like visually to life more. Because one thing I really loved about the the first movie, and we talked about this briefly, was the set design, kind of that mid-century aesthetic with a modern twist on it. I really love, I love that a lot. And so... Even though, you know, the, the big temporary house is not maybe used to full effect or not used to its original effect. It's really cool it's to look at that set. and kind it of, really is. right? Like daydream. Like, <laughs> yep. what would I do if this were my place? And fall, um, you might fall in the water, though. You can fall in the water. Yeah. Well, and at first, when Jack's like playing or Dash is playing with the remote, I was like, do, do they have a lazy river in the <laughs> living room? That would be awesome. Because I want a living room yeah. with a lazy river in it, you know? And so I, th- I think that it w- there was a lot of that. And there, I just thought that there were a lot of, there were a lot of one-liners that I kind of glommed onto that I, I don't know if they were absent from the original one, if I just don't remember them, or if I was so frustrated that Elastigirl's entire identity was about protecting her children. She can't be a superhero. She has to protect her children and how, you know, and I know I'm getting like really into the feminist rabbit hole, but it's like, that is important. And I'm not saying it's not important, but also we are still 14 years later struggling with, um, women being able to be paid equitably and having equity at home and that kind of stuff. And that's, I think that's a lot of my frustration with the Incredibles is just that. So I appreciate that Elastigirl's kind of brought to the forefront in this movie. Um, I, I really think that might be it. So, I have a question uh, for Nathan, because Nathan, you and I obviously see this movie quite differently. Um, one of the things that I, I, I'm interested in your take on it, talking about like the themes of this movie, the first movie very clearly you know, has this theme of people who have exceptional talents, but hide them or are suppressed by society in order to fit in and that they want to stand out. And there have been lots of things written about like different ways that that can be interpreted. But I think in in Brad Bird's heart, it really is about how if you are talented in a certain way, you are applauded. But if you're talented in other ways, you you know, society doesn't want you to show it. You want to keep your head down and not be noticed. And and my question about this movie is you know, does it have a theme like that? Because you've mentioned a bunch of those sort of ways you can interpret what uh, Evelyn Deaver is for. But like, I, I felt like there wasn't something that coherent, that it was more like, you know, a screenslaver originally, I read it as being like, everybody is just watching, you know, darn kids are watching too much TV. But you, you took it further and said it's about how, you know, you end up becoming kind of a puppet of whatever it is that you're watching. Um, I'm not sure that this movie kind of takes that single kind of concept and really expands it to the whole movie, which is maybe one of the reasons why it doesn't, it doesn't come on as strong for me as the original movie does. Cause I felt that was a little bit more coherent because everybody from the kids to the parents is under that same theme. And in this movie it's there as social commentary, but like, do you have a sense of sort of what this movie is more broadly about in the way that the first one was about that? 
Well, I'll start by saying I don't always pick up the themes of movies the first time I watch them through. Uh, when I first saw Avengers Infinity War, I just thought it was a big smash em up, and it wasn't until the second time I watched it that I realized it did have a really strong thematic spine to it. But yeah, I don't see a coherent, consistent theme. I see some interesting ideas with the Devers, but it doesn't really connect to any larger message that the movie seems to have, and I think that may be one of its problems. All right. And that said... I'm glad they made this movie, and if they make an Incredibles 3, I'm going to be there, because I love the characters, and I love watching Brad Bird do his thing. I just hope that next time they give him a little more time to do it right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Any other thoughts about this that we haven't uh, gotten to? Now's the chance to get, get it all out there. Steve, you got any notes? <laughs> um, I think we've covered most of them. I, uh, <laughs> several of the ones that still exist are just me more, me complaining more about things that got picked up and then <laughs> dropped. I mean, you start the movie with Tony's memory wiping. You kind of expect that that's going to be a big plot point, but it turns out to be almost completely incidental. Well, Violet gets mad at her dad about it, and then he learns not to be a jerk, kind of, we assume. Yeah, but it's the opening scene. Yeah. I mean, the opening scene of The Incredibles is those great interviews that kind of set everything up so yeah. wonderfully. And that scene at the at the restaurant, although funny, is super sitcom-y. Like, it is literally yeah. oh, just yes. a sitcom scene. Yep. What else? What else? What else? It bothers me a little that Edna's scene is almost pure fan service, as wonderfully funny as it is. But, I mean, the fact that she produces this cool little suit slash iPad combo for the baby doesn't really pay off. I mean, it breaks partway through the final scene, and then it never is <laughs> heard from again. What disappointed me about, like, so one of the things I, I, that delights me about that scene with Edna is she's so offended that Elastigirl's new costume that she's been provided by the Devers is by a different designer. Right. The problem I have with it is it's so much just the same suit that she had before, except sparkly. And I kind of wanted that scene where the Devers put her in, like, the corporate makeover and give her a costume that's not at all like her old costume because they want it to be like this new, cool, modern thing so mm-hmm. that we can all be like, there's something wrong here. And that Edna can be like, that is unacceptable. It's bad design, all of those things. But that doesn't that doesn't happen. It's just that she's it's just a, a single joke that she's offended that somebody else made the suit for her. But I kind of wanted something bigger there of uh yeah of of this like they're, how dare they're, you they're a little bit of a block right like they I, it feels like they want us as viewers of the movie to be able to see that costume as uh reading as her. i assume that's the reason but why meanwhile, right? they want something different for the you know but maybe yeah. they give her a cape or something and she's like mm, i don't know right <laughs> and then we're like aha yeah. there you get yeah. a reference to the first movie come on yeah yeah so simple but what you want to do is like the spider-man black costume thing right like completely different and she, she does make she does say that she's not angsty which is i, I like yeah she makes a crack about yeah. not being angsty. But. I think it's an interesting contrast to when she later, when she's mind controlled, having kind of the dark Elastigirl. girl. I thought that that fit pretty well. And especially when she and Bob are fighting it out before she slaps the goggles on him. I was like, oh, that's a really interesting, like visually interesting differentiation between the two of them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I wonder, you, you mentioned the interviews at the beginning of the first movie, and I, I did, I, I, I wonder if there would be a, a way to maybe set the tone of like how the society views superheroes at, at the beginning of this movie to give Evelyn some motivation. Like there's some talk mm. that maybe it's time for the superheroes to come back in the light or something like that. And I know that goes against what Rick Dicker says, where he's like, look, we're pulling the plug on this. Um, but that, like the threat that the supers were coming back 
um, possibly down the road, if her brother can just give it a little push, might be more of a, a justification for her to put her plan into into place. And it would set the scene of the world a little bit. But because um, I, I did like how that original movie set the scene with those interviews. Yeah, those are great. And poor Tony Reidinger. He gets his mind wiped at the beginning of the movie, and then basically he and Violet end the second movie in the exact same place where they end the first movie, <laughs> with no forward motion. They have even, like, the, at the end of the first movie, they make a date to go to the movies. In the, the end of the second movie, they finally go on the date. And it's well, just treading water. They get to the front of the theater, and, he tell, and she tells him to buy the popcorn, which she told him in the first movie. And so they're slightly further along but still not actually on <laughs> Just, the date well sort of but that's like a high school co- or middle school high school like dating thing is like yeah. it's so slow and clumsy and weird and awkward that I don't know. I think it worked for me. I think for it's those funny reasons. in that sense of like, oh boy, the superhero life is just going to ruin your personal life. It's a classic comic mm. book kind of thing. Um, I think it's funny that they go back to Tony because, of course, that is the big thing that happens with Violet at the end of the first movie, and that is not dropped. Instead, it becomes this thing where it's totally ruined, and and Rick Dicker has erased his memory. Um, part of me does think that it's while it's fun, it, it literally is completely unnecessary in this movie but you know it is fun and it is a callback to the first movie they have some alternate openings where instead of tony they go back and see carrie the babysitter who got her mind wiped (laughs) uh in the first film and that is again really funny and and like she has actual brain damage which is a little bit disconcerting (laughs) she might have had some to begin with based on the way her character was portrayed Yeah, she's actually one of the animators at Pixar, and she's on one of the commentary tracks on the Blu-ray, and hearing her talk about, you know, she was, I think, the crowd supervisor, but just hearing her talk in that Carrie the Babysitter voice never stops being funny. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought it was a little weird um, in the scenes where Helen is preparing to save the train or do whatever, you know, the, the PR squad is having her do next where she's still technically supposed to be illegal, and yet she's just kind of chilling in public in her suit not trying to hide or anything, and people are just sort of walking by. She's corporate sponsorshiped. What? <laughs> it just seems like she'd want to keep a slightly lower profile. Once but... you've got big money behind you, you're okay. And then the, the only other thing I had is that uh, it took me a while to get over the fact that f- for me, at least for the first few scenes, the character models just seem off somehow. Like, I think with the extra processing power they have after 14 years, they decided to add some detail, particularly to the faces. And having seen the first movie so many times over the years, they just look weirdly wrong to me. Not enough to be, like, horrifying or anything, but just, you know, like, I I feel like even in the very first scene where we see what's supposed to be the ending scene from the previous movie, like, Violet has gained, like, an extra bag under her eye, or they, like, they deepened it or something. All the models have been redone, according to the commentary track I just looked at. Uh, Apparently, they said that they actually start the movie with the original models, and then slowly, they they tried, at least, to slowly ramp up the detail throughout that opening sequence, so that they start exactly where they were with the first film, and kind of, they tried, at least, to ease you into the more modern characters. Yeah, it didn't work for me. (laughs) Maybe there's an uncanny valley that is happening there, where they're kind of in between. I I had that thought about about, um, the, the Devers, who I don't love uh but one of the things about them that i I thought was you know they want to make this movie have the look of the incredibles and the incredibles look uh was in part because that was the look they needed to do technologically in 2004 and so while it's using 2018 technology now and they are going to advance those character models you can't go too far with it or they won't be recognizable as the incredibles the problem is that does mean that all your new character designs have to be in that style and 
I actually think that style is really good for superheroes. Um, less good for normal people. <laughs> and I thought the Devers yeah. character design was a little bit weird because of that, that it's, it's not yeah. there. They are, they try to have it be that they're more angular, right? They got pointy edges a little bit more than the, than the Incredibles, uh, the, the Parr family does, but I don't know. It is a, a tough thing when you're, you know, the nice thing about doing these movies is your actors don't age visibly but the technology changes radically in 14 years of computer animation well nothing says you couldn't have just used the old models for the previously seen characters yeah i think it's not like they advanced everybody that much no i i I think think in terms of the pixar like development pipeline and stuff i don't think they could have i think they had to rebuild the models but it is true you can't there's only so much you can change about them yeah i mean i feel like dash used to be kind of a cute little knucklehead and he's actually kind of ugly now I don't know what it is about him, but he's he's off-putting now. I don't know how they got the same uh, or a voice that sounds so like Dash when it was apparently like a prepubescent kid in the first movie, and it's a prepubescent kid now still. I, they must it's have a done match. a really good job casting a sound alike. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty solid. Uh, on the contrary, the age change in voices for uh, Craig Nelson and Holly Hunter is a little distracting. I think really considering it's supposed to be like a week after or you know, the previous movie. But that particularly the scene where they're in bed talking together and trying to decide whether Helen should do her little PR thing, it, they both sound much, much older hmm. to me. And it's it's strange. Yeah, I, uh, I thought they got away with it. I, it didn't bother me. I feel like I've been more negative on this movie than I than I than I really feel towards it. Yeah. Um, you know, my final note on it is this was a fun superhero adventure with characters I love and maybe one tenth the emotional resonance of the original. I agree. I I think it, the original is great because it combines great music, great look, great characters, and that through line, the emotional resonance of the family and the importance of the family. And this movie to me, yeah, the plot is not my favorite. The villains don't really work for me, but I get to spend time with those characters that I like. There are a lot of funny jokes. The music's still good. The, the you know production design is still great. And the action stuff is fun. It's just not, it's missing the resonance and it's missing some of the cohesiveness for me of, uh, of the first movie. I really enjoy this movie. I stipulate that, yeah, it doesn't hold up as quite as well as Incredibles. Certainly the motivation, all of the stuff that we've, we've talked about. What I enjoy about it is just how visceral it is. It's beautiful to look at. Watching uh, Elastigirl move through the city is amazing. So good. On the bike, it's amazing. Mm. The the train oh. is amazing. I'm with Aline that I, I love seeing her go out and do awesome stuff because, frankly, I think she's just more dynamic and interesting to watch do stuff than uh, Mr. Incredible, uh, who's, you know, basically the Hulk kind of guy. I I just really enjoyed it. I loved the use of screenslaver and the uh, the visual effects. I thought that was pretty remarkable and something that I think we would be commenting on more if it hadn't been for another movie that came out this year. Yeah, I I, I think that this is a good solid movie that didn't quite hit Incredibles one level, but Incredibles one level is a that is a remarkable piece of film. I still hold this one in, in very very high regard. I, like I said, I waited 14 years to see this movie. I kind of wish I had had to wait 15 years. <laughs> sure. I would have liked the yeah. extra time. Yeah. It, it's a really fun movie. I feel kind of sad that it had to come out because uh, you can tell that everyone involved worked really, really hard to make this the best movie it could. I feel sad that it kind of had to came, come out the same year as Spider-Verse. But that said, bring on Incredibles 3, Revenge of the Raccoon. <laughs> I'm with everybody else. This is a good movie. I enjoy it. I think it's. I think it is not the best Pixar movie, but I think it's also not the worst Pixar movie, and it's somewhere in the middle. I I think the 
the, yes, the first movie to me set a very high bar. And this one, you know, after all that time, then they get put in production and they have to rush it and change the story as they go. That's a real shame. Um, but the more I watch it, the more I appreciate the good things about it and the more that the, the gaps show. But you know what? It's a fun movie. And and we can we can pick apart. We do that here. We can pick apart the, the things we have uh, that a problem with in the movie. But um, I like it. I don't regret buying it on 4K Blu-ray, right? Because it looks so good and it sounds so good. And it's fun to watch um, despite the parts that are are not as not as good you know what i think the incredibles is as close to a perfect movie as maybe i've seen in animation and it's not uh it's it's fine i'm glad that this is a movie that i like even if i don't love it so that's where i am on it um Final thank you to my panelists for being here. Aline Sims, thank you. Thank you. After watching, I feel like I need to go play Portal again. <laughs> uh, the one where she she's falling down and then her momentum flings her against the plane is the one that really reminded me of Portal. That's good stuff. Guy English, thank you. I feel like I should have come out swinging harder for this movie, but uh, I did manage to get out of here without saying anything bad about Bob Odenkirk or Catherine Keener, both of whom I really love. That's good. I didn't. I, I didn't get out of this movie. Without, <laughs> yeah, I know. I have no I problem know. with Bob Odenkirk. Uh, Nathan yeah. Alderman, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. This has been a blast. And Steve Lutz, uh, again, uh, thank you, and here's your chocolate chip cookie. Ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We will see you next week. 